from 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you Santander buys Wirecard's core European business for 100 million euro, PNC buys BBVA USA, and the FCA says no as Lannister launches its new polymorphic payment card. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 481 of Fintech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Kate Moody. How are you doing, Kate? It's been way too long since we did this together. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, it'll be a, be a good one. I'm also very excited because my, my husband has just taken delivery of a PlayStation 5, so I think this is the only social interaction I'm likely to experience for the next month, I would say, being optimistic. So yeah, looking forward to it. Is that Christmas present, an early Christmas present, or is it just a present to himself? Just a present to himself. I mean, lockdown, things got to give. Yeah, okay. If you could just please don't tell my partner that's a thing, that they exist, then, uh, you know, we don't need any more of any more games consoles in this house. Um, of course, we are not alone. We are joined remotely by some awesome guests. Uh, first up, making their FinTech Insider news debuts, we have David Jarvis, CEO of Griffin. How are you doing today, David? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Uh, we are also joined by Ginger Schmelzer, Senior Analyst at IT Group. How are you, Ginger? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. We should also say, and this is a podcast, I'm going to point out that Ginger has possibly the best background we have ever seen. Uh, Ginger, could you just give us a quick description of what that is? Uh, so my background is the Four Seasons Landscaping Company in Pennsylvania, which we all know we've got uh, quite a bit of, uh, I don't know, infamous recognition as the background for the press conference Rudy Giuliani held. So I just thought it would be fun to bring that into today's discussion. I really, really hope that that business is doing incredibly well right now. Um, they are leveraging this into t-shirts and cups and Zoom backgrounds and all kinds of great stuff. They, they, they've, it's, it's, it's been great for their business. I'm very glad to hear that. Um, and making a welcome return, we have Anna Herrera, FinTech correspondent at Reuters. How are you doing today, Anna? I'm good, thank you. Okay, well, thank you to my guests. Let's get started. Uh, Santander has bought Wirecard's core European business for 100 million euro is our first story. Uh, Spanish lender Banco Santander is paying uh, that figure for Wirecard's core business in Europe in a transaction that marks an important step towards the dismantling of the disgraced German payments provider, which collapsed into insolvency this summer. Some 500 employees will join Spain's biggest bank, which is acquiring Wirecard's European technology platform that processes electronic payments for merchants as well as its remaining credit card issuing business in Europe. Wirecard employees will become part of Santander's payments technology company, GetNet. The acquisition does not include Wirecard companies and Santander will not assume any legal liability relating to Wirecard AG and Wirecard Bank or its past actions, the Spanish bank said. Yes, I'm fairly sure they would wanted that in the in the contract. Um, Wirecard Bank would be wound down after the deal uh, with Santander had been completed. Um, thoughts on this one? Who wants to go first? Kate, go on, kick us off. Yeah, sure. Um it kind of, I mean, obviously, it sounds like a, an interesting move for, for Santander. Obviously, they've, as you say, taken the the less contentious parts of the deal. They've sort of left behind the, the legal obligations. Uh, and it's interesting. I've been trying to follow some of the announcements that have been coming out of Santander in, in, in Brazil around kind of, I know we're going to talk about some Brazil payments stuff sort of later on the show as well. But, you know, it sounds like they've been making some movements on, on kind of the payment side in Brazil around um, their kind of get net uh, offering as well and it sounds like this is all kind of interconnected they're trying to really work out 
what they want to offer in the payment space, whether they're going to break that out as a separate entity. So this feels like it's part of a, a bigger play for, for Santander in that space, which I think is interesting to watch. So interesting for Santander. Part of me is just really quite intrigued about, I think, the the only other bidder in this in this piece, I think that got down to the final few, was uh, the mobile virtual network operator like a mobile so actually part of me kind of just wishes they'd got it because i want to know what their plan was at the moment you know i kind of mainly just associate them with the the people that have the stand in the airport that sells you the the sim card when you when you land at the airport but um maybe they've got plans for world domination that we've just not quite caught up with yet so yeah great for santander but i'm partly gutted as well at the same time it's interesting, isn't it? Because like a mobile um, specialise in sort of pay-as-you-go sims that that are, are used by people who, are, as you say, want a sort of temporary um, temporary sim for whatever reason, uh, <laughs> legal, illegal, or otherwise. Um, there are many reasons one might want a temporary sim. So yeah, that would have been an interesting, an interesting way to go. Um, David, did you have any thoughts on this one? Yeah. So um, two points, uh, just in response to uh, what you brought up. So, so first of all, I think Santander's investment in the payment space is really interesting. I think they see themselves as building out sort of gateway capabilities where they're looking to be able to provide, you know, a, a one-stop shop for any possible payment scheme anywhere in the world. And of course, Santander has like incredible global coverage. So for them, I think this is just all about expanding those capabilities. And I know that they've been investing very, very heavily in that over the last um couple of years. And then the Leica stuff is, is also super interesting. So one of the things that um, we get a lot of inbound interest in as a sort of fellow banking as a service player is from mobile uh, companies, which is fascinating because I, I, I before starting Griffin, I like didn't really have this on my radar, but mobile companies essentially operate as multinational banks. They just like are used for remittance of minutes rather than remittance of money. Um, but they like obviously operate in this kind of like unregulated space in that capacity. But what's interesting, of course, is that for like, you know, the sort of rationale that underpins that is that it is intended to be like a transfer of value. And so these operators, I think, increasingly see an opportunity to add value to companies who are using them in that capacity by providing the ability to transfer those minutes back into money at whatever the sort of destination source is. And then for the person who's receiving their minutes to be able to withdraw that. So not at all surprising to me that Leica would be very interested in this. Um, Ginger, I, I think you're something of a payments expert, are you not? What What are your thoughts on this one? Uh, so, I, so back up what David said, I, I think it's a part of a bigger trend of consolidation. I think that that as you see merchants and frankly consumers demanding more more optionality at the, at the buy button, they want to have more choice about how they pay. And your players like Santander are needing to have the capability to offer a broader array of options. And so I think you're seeing a move towards more um, technology acquisition, more partnership, more ability to offer a range of payment options and value-added solutions behind that to support the merchants who just, their business becomes more complex every day. And, and I think this is just one, one aspect of that kind of broader trend. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, this sort of acquisition um, piece is interesting because you always look at it and think, right, did they buy that because it was going cheap? I don't know. I don't know if it would have been going cheap. I I literally have no idea of the price of such a thing. Um, did they buy it because it was going cheap and therefore it was cheaper than for Santander to sort of, uh, you know, build it out itself? Or did it make that decision that purchasing this technology that already existed was a better use of resources? Um, Anna, what are your thoughts on kind of the, the motivation for, for deciding to, to buy rather than build? I think I think I'm going to say something quite evident, but I'm going to say it anyways. It's just probably like great timing for Wirecard to collapse for other buyers, right? Because they're probably seeing 
everyone's saying it's a great year for digital payments and people are at home like and they can't go outside and shop there's a shopping online i've certainly written that line like many times this year so you know now there's something up for grabs and it's probably not as expensive as it would have been <laughs> like <laughs> last year at least wirecard i don't know if then they're bidding and it goes up um but certainly you know like they had the option to buy now so i guess why not um, it's it's funny, right? Because now everybody's buying. There's more consolidation, but before that, they were all the banks were selling. This before a couple many years ago, but they, many of these, not not this one specifically, but many of the big payments companies originated from consortiums of banks or banks themselves, and they got rid of them, and now they're trying to get them back. So it's curious how these things. It's all cycles, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we're going to come on to a story later that's sort of banks divesting bits and other banks buying bits. And it's, it's very interesting to see those movements. Um, and David, did you have some thoughts? I think the other kind of minor thing that's worth keeping in mind, right, is that this is very narrowly scoped as a technology acquisition and not a sort of other asset acquisition. Um, but one of the other ways of uh, framing that is that it, it could be a talent acquisition, right? So if they're looking to really lever up on this as a long-term bet, it may be that they, like, if it's possible that they assess the Wirecard assets as actually worthless. But the sort of conventional Silicon Valley wisdom used to be that a, you know an engineer is worth like sort of you're looking at an aqua hire right like basically looking at like a million dollars per engineer is like a pretty good acquisition price and if you do the math on this it's like you know two hundred thousand euros an engineer that's actually pretty cheap for a team that you know knows how to work together has deep payments expertise and like probably brings with it some business lines um, viewed just through the lens of like oh we want to bulk up on this like that by itself I think is very strategic. Dave, that's an interesting point. I, I, one of the things that we've been hearing in some of our discussions here at ITE is a trend by even the largest banks to move away from building in-house, which they've always done, towards more kind of partnering and, and, and you know, um, uh, working with the fintechs. And it's an interesting, your, your, your angle on it is interesting because that could also be a swing, as Anna said, kind of back in the other direction where we've had the swing away from building in-house to partnering and, and co-offering. And now swinging back to if I can get the right talent in, in my inside my factory, I can build it myself and differentiate from the others who are all partnering. It's an interesting kind of pendulum swing back and forth, and, and you know who knows where it's going to land, but it'll be fun to watch. Anna, did you want to add to that? Yeah, and I was just thinking on price, right? I mean, again, I'm not, I don't go up, up shopping for for payments company normally, but I'm just thinking, you know, if you compare these to the valuations of payment fintechs that haven't listed yet, think of Stripe. And it's like a hundred million isn't that expensive, right? So probably it was a good deal, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I should I don't know if I should make a proclamation without having seen the numbers, but but still, you know, if if you think about it, they might be considering buying like another startup payment company, but the valuation is crazy because it's like VC's valuations, right? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point, actually, because um, some of the valuations of these companies is just crazy. Like it, it you know, gets to the point where it doesn't actually make a lot of sense, um, even if you're looking at it from, you know, an understanding of the numbers. And for those of us who perhaps have, you know, less understanding of the actual nitty gritty of the figures, it, it, it does. That's a really good point, actually. It does put it into perspective, um, considering for those of us rather that don't go around buying payment companies on a regular basis. Um, does anybody have any final thoughts on this one or shall I move us along? I suppose um I suppose to Ginger's point around you know, the pendulum swinging away from banks building that things in house, you know, I think this is part of the, the bigger shift that I'm sure we're going to talk about in terms of banking as a service. But you know, I think this has been happening for quite a long time. One of the most interesting conversations I think I've had in my time at Eleven FS was speaking to someone at a at one of one of the largest sort of African banks at the beginning of not even this year, but the year before, where they were just saying that they've just reached the realization that they 
they can't build things themselves anymore. They just cannot keep up with the the speed of change in the market. So I think the pandemic will have accelerated this even further, kind of this move towards digital and this need to evolve product and service offering quickly. But I think the the footprints were already there and the the movement was already starting to happen, but we're just seeing it accelerate now. Yeah, I think that's a really good point as well. I think, you know, the the banks, which um, arguably and, and providers that arguably should have realized a long time before now they needed to, to improve their digital propositions have suddenly been faced with the realization that if they do not do so, they will not have any business and are scrabbling around to work out how to do things quickly. And, you know, I don't think it's unfair for me to say that the larger uh, financial services organizations out there do not have a history of doing anything quickly, um, certainly not quickly and effectively. Um, does anyone want the final word? Word or shall I shuffle us along? All right. Well, we're not going far. We're staying with banking as a service. All right. Bear with me. This one's got multi multi-part story here. Okay. So um, first up, Griffin and Rails Bank have raised funds, and then to follow that up, Marketa and Uber have teamed up on cards. So. Banking as a service provider Griffin has secured £6.5 million in funding. Griffin is building a proprietary API platform that will let firms open ring-fenced accounts for customer funds alongside an integrated compliance engine and ledger to reduce record-keeping and reconciliation burdens. This follows uh, less than a week after fellow London-based banking as a service platform RailsBank raised $37 million. And that raise will be used to help Rails Bank extend in the US, where it is launching a credit card as a service offering, which is designed to make it faster and cheaper for fintechs and brands to launch into the $3.8 trillion American credit card market. And finally, uh, in the same week, Marketa and Uber have entered a strategic global partnership with Marketa powering Uber's physical and virtual cards worldwide. Right. So now we've covered all that off. Um, David, let's come to you first. Uh, congratulations on the raise. Um, can you tell us a bit more about Griffin and what you're going to spend that money on? Um, thank you. Uh, so uh, let's talk a little bit about Griffin. Um, probably would be helpful for me to give just a very, very brief background as to how I came to start the company. So my background was working for a US uh, API banking firm called Standard Treasury, which was what you would think of as sort of one of the middleware players in this space. So uh, like a firm like Synapse FI, uh, Standard Treasury was set up to connect banks to fintechs and to sort of serve as the API gateway for companies that needed API access. Um, and the lesson that I took away from that experience is that that is a very weak place to be um, because your banking partner has a lot of leverage over you. They dictate the price that you will sell services at. They dictate the risk tolerance, who you can work with, and they dictate your product roadmap. Uh, so that's not an ideal uh, position from which to run a business, but you know you have a fairly simple answer. Just go become a bank yourself. Haha. Um, easier said than done in the US, which is not quite the friendliest environment in which to set up a new bank, but here in the UK, of course, the PRA and FCA are very pro-competition. Um, and so, especially after Monzo was authorized, I really perked up and said, okay, I, I think the UK might be the right place for us to do this. There's obviously a rich uh, sort of target ecosystem in terms of the number of financial technology companies here, and you have the access to the rest of Europe. Um, so the thing that we look to do is we look to provide the sort of back end for companies that want to offer financial services products, but are not banks themselves. And that's incredibly broad, includes companies who want to do, you know, prepaid cards, payments, brokerages, wallets, the works. Uh, and some of these companies are regulated um, and some of them are not. And they are looking for someone with whom to safely store the customer funds that they held and manage on platform. Um, 
and they need a banking partner for that. Uh, and so the, the problem that these guys run into generally is that A, it is just incredibly time consuming to build these banking relationships. Uh, a lot of that has to do with uh, needing to satisfy the financial crime um, expectations of the firms that they're trying to work with. And so it's not that they don't have it, it's just that literally demonstrating that you have adequate financial crime controls in place can take you six months. Uh, and then on the back of that, let's say you have you know, have your account open with your clearing bank, your, your banking partner, you now have to build quite a bit of uh, ledger infrastructure to keep track of the sort of semantic meaning of what's happening in the accounts. Payments in, payments out, who do they really belong to? What do they actually mean? And so for us, uh, it just sort of seemed obvious that by vertically integrating these three things, the sort of ledger, the bank, and the compliance engine, you could dramatically accelerate their time to market while also providing um, really streamlined reconciliation, which turns out to be a big operational burden, even for very established financial services companies that have been operating for a long time. Um, so uh, that's all kind of what, what, what we do, how we position ourselves. I think we're a little bit unusual in that we have chosen to go and become a bank, um, which puts us in, in pretty rare company. I think Solaris Bank is really the only other European player that's going after a similar strategy. We think having the bank license is uh, a real competitive advantage for a few reasons. One, it allows us to serve uh, regulated firms that want to be able to offer financial services. So if you're an electronic money provider running a banking as a service um, operation, you like can't safeguard funds for other electronic money providers, other payments institutions, et cetera. Those firms do need to have a commercial bank in the chain. Similarly, uh, if you are on the sort of client money capital market side and you want to do anything interesting involving ISA products, HMRC has said you have to work with a commercial bank. You can't work with an electronic money institution. Um, so that's like one side to sort of basic regulatory satisfaction. Then you have uh, obviously the fact that you can pay interest, your accounts have deposit insurance. But I think there's also just a kind of raw marketing element to it, which is that people, especially after the Wirecard um, collapse, feel much more comfortable with the idea of knowing that they're working with an actual bank rather than something that isn't a bank and there's some sort of chain of unclear counterparties behind that. Um, so that has led us down this path of obviously trying to become a bank. Um, we're, uh, we've been really enjoying our interactions with the PRA and FCA. It's a very constructive process. Obviously, I'm, I'm like, I end up being quite constrained about what exactly I can say other than that uh, it's a real pleasure to work with um, uh, regulators who are so forward thinking and who are really invested in creating a pro-competition environment. Yeah, we, we do love our regulators over here. We um, genuinely, those of us who, who actually have to engage with them are really quite fond of them. Um, Kate, I believe you have some thoughts on banking as a service. In fact, did you not uh, feature in a documentary on the subject recently? Oh, I blather on a little bit in our Decoding Banking as a Service uh, documentary, yeah. Um, mainly kind of thinking about it from the from the customer perspective, you know, what does this mean in terms of the the types of services that we'll be able to to offer to, to customers? Um, I suppose mainly thinking from the retail customer perspective, but, you know, David, you make some really interesting points about, you know, what, what partners are looking for as well. And I think that's that's a really key consideration off the back of, off the back of Wire, off the back of the Wirecard scandal. Um, obviously, it's interesting, you know, Rails Bank, are very very busy at the moment as well. So they obviously bought up the the UK Wirecard entity, and now they're kind of moving into the US. So um, yeah, I'd be interested to get your thoughts, David, if you can, on on, on what Rails Bank are doing and kind of what you think of, of their strategy. I don't know if that's cheeky. I think we might have to take that one offline a bit later. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what David could say publicly. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I, what I what I can say is that. Um, 
I, I so I know Nigel. Uh, he and I actually caught up last week. Um, I, I think what they've done is really impressive. I think their technology is really impressive. We've obviously chosen to uh, go about trying to solve what we both agree is like a major problem in a, a slightly different way. Um, so you know, he he's very convinced that not being the bank is the right move. Um, I obviously feel differently. Uh, I think um, you know we, we both feel that this is a really big market and that there's room for multiple players here. And I think you know, as I said earlier there's a certain subset of customers that we can serve that he can't by virtue of his regulatory permissions. Um, obviously he's been at this a little bit longer than we are and he's a bit further ahead and we look forward to being able to catch up. <laughs> Very diplomatic. I like it. Um, Anna, there seems to be a lot of news about banking as a service lately. I don't know how much you've covered it yourself, but I would, I would suspect that being in your line of work, you, you have noticed it. Um, what do you think's behind that? I think I think it's maybe I'm going to keep saying just the same stuff. I think part of it is also maybe just the boom in in sort of digital payments and just digital finance in in general and everybody's thinking of launching at least in the US of launching a bank for a subset of clients or a bank for teenagers, a bank for for immigrants and so you know like this helps clearly, right? If if you have if 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 you if you want to set something up and you already have basically really kind of everything you need. I was also just thinking when you mentioned, you know, Rails Bank um, going to the U.S. In the U.S., and I guess Ginger can tell us more about it, but there's also been a lot of talk now, and I don't know if backlash is the right term, but people are sort of starting to wonder if the rent-a-bank uh, sort of charter thing is, is the best uh, way or if it's risky. So I wonder now with a new administration if they'll sort of start becoming uh, a bit more you know, concentrated on what this means, because obviously the, it's more about lenders really. And, but, but I think there were more growing concerns about the fact that, you know, you can, um, you can get a charter somewhere and then set up and uh, set up lending in another place. So it's slightly different, but I was just thinking, you know, if I, if I wonder if they'll encounter, if, if the, if sort of the business proposition changes a bit or, you know, the opportunities change, if there's a change in sort of regulators and administration. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, and we'll come on to a story later that brings this into sort of stark relief. But there is a lot of uh, questioning going on of um, do customers know who's actually serving them, who's actually got their money, um, and and what what you know what uh, licenses and permissions that that company actually has to operate. Um, uh, Ginger, you're shaking your head at me, and I'm definitely going to give you the final word on this. Please, um, anything to to comment on generally, or, or to pick up on Anna's point. Uh, so two things. One, I don't think consumers generally know where their money sits unless they're it's, it's their primary bank. If it's, if their money is, is sitting with with you know a Venmo or a Challenger bank or anybody else, they don't necessarily know who the underlying you know, funds holder is, and and may or may not care as long as they feel like the funds are protected, and they may or may not know the truth of that either. So I think it's it's we we operate in an environment of increasing complexity for financial services, and consumers are you know not so not so sophisticated about that, and it's a, it's a I think an ongoing education challenge for all of us in the industry. The other thing I was going to say is that I find banking as a service very interesting because because for a very long time banks have have many smaller and mid-sized banks particularly have gotten most of their banking capabilities from providers like Pfizer and FIS and so banking as a service is not a new thing particularly the packaging of it and maybe the ease of it it certainly is but there's there's very few banks out there that do everything in house it's it's for a very long time banks have bought everything from their basic core processing all the way through to bill pay and and you know the the customer interfaces and everything else from providers. So, so this is a not a new concept. It's just definitely the way that it's being brought to players that's that's changed. 
yeah, it's, it's a changing of the guard and perhaps a changing of, you know, not what's done, but how it's done, um, I guess, is perhaps what you could say of these players. Um, all right. Well, thank you, um, everybody, for that. We're going to take a quick pause here while we hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility, while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. This episode is also sponsored by Pento, the UK's first automated payroll platform. Say goodbye to clumsy spreadsheets, endless emails with external payroll providers and manual payments. Pento lets you run payroll in just a few clicks. It calculates taxes, integrates with platforms like Xero and makes all the payments and reports to HMRC and pension providers for you. Go to pento.io forward slash insider to run payroll for free for the rest of the year. That's pento.io forward slash insider. We've just launched two brand new shows on our LinkedIn page and if you love our podcast, you should go and check them out. Every Tuesday, we deep dive into the biggest banking and fintech news stories with our show Newsroom. We've already had great episodes on the FinCEN files leak and the CrowdCube and Cedars merger that you can watch back on our LinkedIn or YouTube now. And every Thursday, we speak to experts in technology and financial services about the work that they do and their careers to date. Welcome back. So um, our next story is that PNC is to buy BBVAUS. So BBVA has agreed to sell its U.S. business BBVA USA bank shares to PNC for $11.6 billion. Uh, The deal is expected to close next year. Um, BBVA USA has $104 billion in assets under management, 637 branches across southern and western states of the U.S. Um, The new company will have a presence in 29 of the 30 largest markets in the U.S., PNC said. The all-cash deal is the second largest U.S. banking acquisition since the 2008 financial crisis, according to Reuters, and values the American business at 19.7 times its 2019 earnings and 1.34 times its book value as of September 2020. Um, The price also represents almost 50% of BBVA's current market capitalization. Right. I'm glad I got through that. I hope the numbers are all accurate. <laughs> so um, I feel like we have we have uh, current U.S. residents, former U.S. residents um, who perhaps could comment on this. I don't know, Ginger, do you want to go first and then Anna, I'll come to you. Sure, absolutely. I suspect the primary motivation for this, certainly PNC had money to spend after selling BlackRock, which is, you know, Nice to have an opportunity to reinvest. Um, but PNC has, in, in recent years, been expanding its footprint in the U.S., right? They acquired Nat City. They acquired RBC's assets in the U.S. Um, and now, of course, with acquiring BBVA, they've got the whole Southwest, right? So it, it, it really does expand their geographic reach. And it's been part of the, kind of their strategy for, for a while now. Um, so I'm not surprised to see it. And, you know, it makes them number five in the country, which is also kind of a huge benefit. So, so I think that's all good. I do think the other thing that um, BBVA brings to the table is their their digital capabilities, right? They acquired Simple a few years ago. They've been, generally speaking, having as a former banker, we looked at them as one of the more innovative players in the U.S. Um, you know, not not uh, not like USAA quite to that level, but certainly pretty innovative. Um, and then on BBVA, BBVA side of things, I do think that you know pulling the cash out to help them back in their home market in Spain and and back to our consolidation discussion earlier, right? It gives them some more capital to invest there as as things start to um, open up as well. 
Yeah, we've seen um, BBVA is certainly not the first European organisation to divest itself of some some US um, business lately. I, I believe Barclays did it quite recently as well. Um, Anna, what about you? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I thought, I don't know why, but I thought the most interesting part is why is BBVA, just the thought that BBVA has decided they're going to leave the US. I thought that, that was interesting um, in itself. Um, and I was thinking, yeah, of the fact that they have been making lots of, they, they made lots of acquisitions or was for certainly simple and then no one heard about simple anymore. So I was wondering if they just had the reputation of being innovative or if they were actually innovative or if they were innovative in the right way so that they, because certainly if they had been very innovative and they were doing great, then they wouldn't have sold maybe, or, or maybe they just needed them as we were saying, (laughs) maybe they just needed the money um, to put it somewhere else. Or maybe they decided they're going to focus on LATAM more, which is where they have a bigger, but uh, I, I don't know. I just, I just thought it, more as a them retrenching from from there rather than PNC growing, even though obviously that's that's I guess the main the main story. But I just thought it's in, it's interesting because again we keep seeing in the US how you know there are tons of banks, but there there's starting to be this even bigger dichotomy between the smaller banks which don't have money to invest as much money to invest in tech um, and can't innovate as, innovate as quickly versus the big, big banks like JP Morgan and LPNC is up there and also the fintechs, right? So I, I wonder what's going to happen as a whole in the landscape if, if we're going to see, you know, more smaller banks disappearing and what does that mean for financial inclusion? What does that mean for, you know, competition? And it just really transforms a market that has been this way for a long time. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I My first thought was exactly the same. Well, why is BBVA leaving? Um, on the innovation point, I think if you look to what they've done in Europe, they, they can point more successfully to a lot of innovation, um, particularly in Spain. You know, they're, they're very much the leaders there. Go back to banking as a service. You think about BBVA's API marketplace. You know, they were one of the first to get into that space and, and, and they're often the first to launch new um, customer-facing uh, services as well. Um, so I, I kind of agree with your your analysis there that it feels like they've gone, oh, America's too hard. We're done with America. We're going to go down to Latin America where we where we know our, we know what we're doing and there's huge opportunities for growth and we're going to retrench into Europe because, you know, we, we we can redirect some of those funds to, to really establish ourselves or, well, sort of confirm and cement ourselves as, as innovation leaders there. Um, Kate, did you want to add something to that? Yeah, I suppose, you know, following on the same same line of thought and going back to David's point earlier about, you know, these deals not just being about movements of brands and assets, but about people and talent as well. I think that'd be really interesting. I, I've not seen yet from the detail about what the what the movement will be between kind of the current BBVA team in the US. You know, will they go across to, to PNC? I've not had you know extensive dealings with them, but you know some of the conversations we've had with some individuals in their innovation team, you know they were certainly you know, really smart people doing some you know thinking about some really interesting things on the BBVA side. Um, whether that was being executed in the US or kind of in their other markets, so, you know, was less clear. But um, you know I don't instantly think of PNC as a super digital innovative brand. I know they've got a really great reputation and they've got some really great sort of customer service models and things like that. But you know, it'd be interesting to see if this is, obviously there's geographic benefits to this, they're broadening their reach, but they might also be really important and interesting talent acquisitions as well that might help them to remain relevant. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the point that Anna brought up as well is really interesting about um, what's going to happen to that middle layer. So PNC having a great reputation for customer service. Um, of course, the, the middle layer that those of us who, who live outside of the US some, sometimes struggle to understand or, or forget about is the community banks who, who have a, a great reputation for that customer service, 
but are, are often slower um, and, you know, further behind on, on kind of digital and innovative services. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, to Anna's point about vulnerable customers, what happens if that middle layer just gets absorbed and absorbed and absorbed and you have sort of the, the giants at the top and the digital innovators at the bottom who aren't necessarily going to reach some of those vulnerable communities that community banks have, have served so well? Um, David, did you, did you want to add anything to this did you want anything to this story? Um, did you want to add any points, <laughs> any points, or, or, or kind of you know bring up bring up something else on this? I, I think it is really interesting. Um, I mean, BBVA's uh, reputation and brand within the U.S. is definitely not of like a mass market consumer brand, um, and you know their acquisition of Simple was essentially through their having served as the like you know banking partner, and then probably realizing that like actually just running these as two separate businesses was kind of nonsense and they could be much more efficient by bringing it in. And I, I do wonder whether, you know, from um, uh, PNC's perspective, they were sort of looking at BVA and being like, okay, cool. These guys have like no idea how to acquire retail customers. Their business is actually like essentially now retail banking. They've got good technology, but they like don't really know what they're doing running a retail bank. If we take this over, maybe we can actually take this like you know, again, technology asset and like do something interesting with it. Um, there's a lot, there's a, I mean, there's a lot going on there that's just very interesting to me. I guess, yeah, they, they could combine, they could solve that problem I sort of mentioned earlier. They could combine their great customer service with the digital tools to allow them to, to deliver it to, to a, a new audience. Um, does anybody want the final word? Only, I mean, I enjoyed very much Sam Moore, I think, touched on this on his sort of breakfast brief. And I enjoyed very much how excited he was at the idea of like Pittsburgh just becoming the the next center of financial and digital innovation. So I think that's an exciting thing for us to to watch out for as, as the months and years go by, you know, watch out, Pittsburgh's coming. I will try and work out where it is. The only thing I know about it is the name of its ice hockey team. Um, there's an ice hockey fan in this house. It isn't me. Um, I, one question I forgot to ask that I do want everybody to have a guess at is what is the name of this new organization going to be? BBV, BBVAUSPNC? Ooh, that's a mouthful. Yeah. Did they not say what they were going to call it? Oh, did they? Did I miss it? No, I'm I'm just I'm just wondering. They normally do and they probably have to hire like 500 consultants to come up with it. And then it sounds like a weird pharma product or company. <laughs> weird dysfunctions. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that because I'm I'm just genuinely um A interested and B really really want them to go for something with with fewer acronyms because then my life would be a lot easier. All right. It's funny, Sarah, you asked that question. I had just read it as it would be PNC. PNC acquired BBVA, and that would be the name, the brand they put on everything else, which is what they've done with their prior acquisitions. So this is more of an equals than the others, but still. Yeah, no, that's that's totally fair, and that probably is what they'll do. But I was thinking along the lines of um, if BBVA has, you know, Simple and Holvi as separate brands, do they then become PNC, and then does they, they lose the edge, you know, the reputation they have? Um, I don't know. I'm not an expert. As you say, uh, Anna, it takes 500 or so marketing experts to come up with these things. So maybe we should give ourselves a break because there are only five of us. Um, all right. We're going to uh, move to Brazil now and talk about the fact that it has launched an instant payments platform um, and it expects WhatsApp to return soon. So, Brazil's central bank has introduced its PIX instant payments platform, which lets citizens, companies, and government entities make instant payments using QR codes or recipient information, such as phone numbers, emails, and tax IDs. They have already seen 72 million registrations from individuals and businesses. Um, PIX runs in a centralized settlement infrastructure called the Instant Payment System, operated and managed by the Banco Central do Brasil, 
I know that's pronounced wrong. My Portuguese is diabolical. I apologize. Um, and it's designed to foster competition in a market dominated by the five big banks. Uh, WhatsApp launched its P2P payment service in Brazil in June, but the central bank suspended it within 10 days of rollout. Central Bank President Roberto Campos Nito revealed that WhatsApp will start doing P2P soon. Uh, so it's coming back. In addition, he has said he has talked to other US tech giants, including Google and Facebook, about entering the country's payment market. Um, okay, Ginger, as the payments expert, I'm going to throw to you first on this one. I think this is interesting, and, and I've been following it for, for a little while now. I mean, Brazil is, is, a, is a fascinating market. It's 200 million people. About a quarter of them are un, unbanked. Um, and, and you've got credit card penetration there, but really cash is still the preferred payment method in, in many ways. Huge penetration in mobile as well. And so what PIX does kind of gives good reach into the mobile um, access points. One of the most popular payment options in Brazil is called Boleto, which is a voucher-based system that people can use to pay. Um, and it is a little bit clunky, but it's widely used and, and very, very comfortable for many people. And it's fairly cheap from a merchant perspective, which is why they encourage it over cards in many situations. So what PIX does is kind of gives you good reach into the unbanked population. Uh, it's much simpler to use. It's, it's readily uh, available. They've mandated it that all the banks, all the first year banks at any rate have to be a part of the system, right? And it's 24 seven availability where Boleto is, is not. So it, it's, I think it's a really interesting play. And I suspect, and I don't know, the, the WhatsApp suspension back in June is because the regulators, the bank was, was working on putting picks out there and wanted a chance to kind of get this all together at one time. So it looks like WhatsApp will be part of the pick system as will Facebook and Google and others. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting. I think that um, you still have a place for card payments in Brazil, right? They have installments. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty um, popular payment option for, for kind of larger purchases. Uh, but I suspect that PIX will will pick up a lot of those day-to-day -day payments, those those smaller uh, retail payments, the bill pays, that kind of thing. I think it'll be be a, a, an interesting. And they've already got what seventy-two million people registered. It's it's. It's, it's already got kind of huge take up and it just launched this week. So I'll be curious to see how this goes. Yeah, I mean, that, that's huge traction for, for a first week, um, even in a country with a uh, population as large as Brazil's. Um, Anna, uh, did you want to add something to that? Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. Mexico launched something similar, I think, early in 2019. And I don't want to compare, obviously, two countries that are very different, but only happen to be sort of in the same geography. But but it was interesting because there they were talking a lot and the government was hoping that it was going to help with financial inclusion. And I remember at the time I wrote something with one of my colleagues there and the issue that people had and the people that they wanted to financially include, many of them are distressful of, of sort of going into in, in using stuff that's not cash because they're worried that they'll be have to pay taxes and sometimes you know like merchants there are like literally one person with their like fruit at a corner or candy and so they're just worried that they real they don't even realize the advantages that they would have by being banked they're just concerned so i wonder if the same might happen here where you know it's 72 million is a lot of people but but you know and, and there's also a lot of wealthy people in Brazil or middle class people especially in the last few years there's been more so I wonder if it will actually include the people that need to be included I feel with fintech there's a lot of talk of financial inclusion just because it sounds nice but then there remains a, an amount of people that don't get included I don't know I haven't seen any study that says these many people have now been included because of fintech it's it's probably definitely happening but I wonder if there's just a certain area of people that will just not get included and, and if they just remain left out. 
there's people who are left out because they can't access services, but there are always people who are left out because they don't want to access services. I mean, we even have that in Europe. You have people here who won't use electronic payments because they, they don't want their payments to be tracked. They'd rather they'd rather use cash, and it's, it's one of the many reasons given for um, trying to avoid going completely cashless. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There's there's a big difference between the two, between, between wanting access to a service and needing access to a service. Um, Kate, thoughts? Yeah, I think um, I don't know as much about the Brazil market as, as Ginger does, but I think it's definitely a fascinating one given that that concentration of, of the big banks. I think kind of like the last stats I saw, you know, the top five have something like eighty percent of of all of the kind of lending and, and assets and deposits, things like that. So it's, it's really huge concentration. You speak to them there, and the kind of the historic and current you know fees and charges that are in place. Um, you know, compare like even kind of quite aggressively to what we see in the US, which to you know, European UK listeners is, is, is mind-blowing but um it's a really interesting market to see disrupted i totally agree with anna's point around you know, actually will this turn around the the kind of difficulties that unbanked people currently face maybe not it seems like it's probably just going to make it easier for already digitally connected customers to do things faster and smoother so new bank have already built this functionality into their app you know i kind of had a, a look at it online it kind of looks quite interesting. Um, Uber have already said they're going to accept payments via it. So all the kind of big digital players uh, are going to be on board with this very quickly. Um, so I guess it's exciting on one hand, but potentially just risks further increasing the gap between people that are digitally connected and, and people that aren't. Um, so that's definitely something to watch out for. I wonder if the WhatsApp play, um, I actually don't know how popular WhatsApp is in that part of the world. Is it very popular, Anna? Yeah, I, I spent lots of time in Brazil growing up and my friends are all they're all on WhatsApp. So yeah, for sure. They, I think it's, it's a popular, it's definitely more popular than in the US. Yeah. It's the second most popular after India, I think, for WhatsApp. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense then why WhatsApp would be looking to launch payments there. And um, I just wondered if perhaps um, people might be more willing to use it if it's integrated with WhatsApp than they would if it was integrated via a separate system or a banking system if, if WhatsApp is a, is a preferred method of, of communication already. I think um, the other thing that I thought was interesting about, you know, when the government have been talking about it is they're already starting to talk about you know the other functionalities they're going to add to it so i think they're already talking about cashback and pre-programmed payments so i think it's, it's really exciting to see a central uh body kind of pushing this kind of functionality out in a way that hopefully can be used to really stimulate competition and kind of really you know building on what we've seen in other markets and just putting the basics in there but just already saying that it's going to keep on building and keep on adding so i think it's exciting now and it's going to be really interesting to see what they continue to do with it over over the next kind of months ahead absolutely it's great to see um, ambition and it's great to see you know the government's uh, leading the charge when it comes to ambition um anna yes final thoughts yeah, yeah i i don't know what the terms are but it's curious to see i i would like to know more about what it takes to, to be able to offer services here because i remember when they were discussing the stuff in mexico in the end it was it was talked about as a thing to improve competition but then the ed, the bank sort of had an edge in the end so i wonder if if it's if it is that easy for a small startup to actually uh, come in and offer it like in the UK or in the end the banks have had their hold you know because you know they tend to have very powerful lobbyists and lots of money to spend on these things so I'm definitely going to look into it to see yeah, it sounds like it's um, not only is Brazil, I think I think I was going to say it's one to watch, but I was going to say actually Brazil's a market to watch. I think it's a fascinating market. And even from somebody who's not an expert, there's an awful lot of interesting things happening down there that I think could lead the way that we'll then see other people following, you know, outside of Brazil, even countries like the US and Europe probably could stand to learn a lot. 
Um, Europe isn't a country, but you know what I meant. Um, right. Okay. Next story. I hope everybody's primed and ready for this. Lannister is a first in fintech, according to Forbes, but the FCA warns consumers against using its services. Lannister revealed its world first polymorphic payment card and began to accept user registrations and app downloads ahead of the launch in January 2021. Um, so it did that this week. Uh, the card includes its own keypad and display, allowing users to generate one time pins and CVV2 codes, which expire after one use for maximum user security. It's worth pointing out this is not a first. It has been done many times previously. Um, for anyone unfamiliar uh, with Lannister, uh, a potted history is as follows. It posted a £150 million valuation from a £15 million funding round back in July um, and has spoken of aiming to reach a £1 billion valuation. So that raised a few eyebrows. Later, it was revealed that the main investor had actually pulled out and then the loss of the 15 million funding was put up by family and friends of the CEO. All this was before its product launched. It still hasn't. And with a website with fewer than 200 words on it explaining its USP. Uh, the CEO said back in July, we have a never seen before debit card and a marketing strategy that has never been used before on the industry. Um, that marketing strategy turned out to uh, involve using lots and lots of social media influencers who I have never heard of, uh, including Love Island contestants. Love, that's right. <laughs> contestants? Contestants. Um, including Love Island contestants to promote its debit card as the most secure card in the world and directing followers to sign up to the waiting list. It announced the new cards on Monday of this week. Um, and then on Thursday of this week, uh, the FCA uh, issued a warning stating that this firm is not authorized by us and is targeting people. Right. I think we've covered all the main details. <laughs> um, Anna, thoughts? My first thought was like, meh, sounds like crypto. Um, just because, you know, I've, I've had the sort of pleasure of covering the ICO boom um, and sort of crypto in general. And it wasn't at all like not normal for someone to say they were going to do something and not do it and like or have absolutely nothing behind it. Nor was it uncommon to have stories on Forbes saying they're good, they're great. Um, I actually did an investigation a couple of years ago where we found sort of people were selling stories on Forbes and, and it's for the contributors. So th I think they're trying to crack down on that, but you know, it's just, I didn't find it too shocking. Obviously it is, it is kind of funny. Um, especially I hope because they don't have any customers yet. So I think it's, do they know? I think so. It's not too bad yet. What it made me think though, is about this like FinTech influencing thing, which I think is just primed for disaster um, and it's it's interesting because, you know, as Sarah and I, you, you and I were talking about it, but, you know, there's even fintech influencers for teenagers. So I'm just thinking, you know, it's it's so risky. And that was the same that was happening with crypto. You had people doing like reviews on, on, on YouTube and it's just so risky because I think it comes from the culture of like reviewing a shoe. And so they naturally think that reviewing a financial product is the same. Clearly it's not. And I just wonder if we're going to get more, we should maybe like regulators around the world should have to come up with more, clearly more very specific and evident rules that anyone can understand that say you cannot be a fintech influencer without following these guidelines. Because it's just like so risky for, for everyone, but it's, but it's, it's growing so fast. 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I don't know. Uh, you, somebody else may know, but I don't believe the FCA uh, guidelines on kind of social media use include, you know, how to use influencers and and and, and what is considered appropriate. Um, you know, the FCA keeps up as quickly as it can, but um, I'm, I'm not sure it's got that far yet. Uh, also interesting to me was a lot of these influencers. I had to be pointed towards them by somebody who understood how this worked. Um, were not in the UK. They were based all around the world. They didn't. They wouldn't. They wouldn't wasn't that they weren't British, they just weren't British and they didn't live here and they lived in Morocco or they were Portuguese or they were Brazilian. And I thought, how is that going to work? Um, Anybody else on this one? Kate, you're you're looking poised. I will come to everybody. Okay, Kate first and then I'll come to everybody because I'm sure everybody's got thoughts. Well, I I don't know if I'm that... I don't know how to express this. I don't know if I'm that bothered by this story. Like, as in, I don't find it that... I think it's quite interesting. You know, they're using influencers in a kind of quite a full-on way in a way that I don't think we've seen other brands go out and do at the moment my understanding is they've kind of just set up a waiting list so um, and they've come out and released a statement saying that you know they are going to be regulated by the FCA and they're kind of going to work with the FCA to kind of correct whatever misunderstandings have led to the FCA statement so um, maybe I'm being overly optimistic I don't know but I'm kind of interested to see whether they can take that the noise that they're creating and translate that through into a product and a service that when it actually is launched, customers who might have been seduced in by uh, an Instagram post, if that actually translates into an experience that can add value to those customers. And I wonder if the financial services industry is freaking out a little bit just because it looks and feels quite aggressively different. You know, their tone of voice, I found quite I mean, it doesn't appeal to me. I'm definitely not uh, the target audience for this, but it was. I think it's interesting. And at the moment, a lot of UK fintechs are starting to all feel quite similar. So I guess it feels like they've gone out there and tried to do something that feels very aggressively different, um, and they've ruffled a few feathers. So yeah, we'll see. I, th- I think that's fair. I think there's a couple of points as well. One of which is that they claimed they were using X, Y, and Z uh, providers, including uh, Jumio and Modular, who both came out and said, we are not, well, sorry, Jumio said, we're nothing to do with this. And Modular came out and said, well, we're still doing due diligence on them, but we certainly aren't their account provider, which is what um, Lannister was claiming. Um, uh, you know, so so that that's, that's part of the problem, because if that hasn't been improved, and they are you know, claiming to distribute products without any kind of licensing. Um, it also feels a lot like a marketeer decided to create a bank without thinking about including anybody who knew anything about banking. Um, and just to, to add to that, to go back to our earlier point, this is part of the problem with that licensing tower, I think. You know, Lannister looks great. It says it's a bank. It's got a card. It's got a card. It must be a bank. Um, and a lot of the audience they're trying to target will have no idea that Lannister doesn't have any kind of license at all or, or who holds their money or even if it's insured. Um, David, I, I promised I'd come to you next. So sorry for rabbiting on myself. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I, th- I think that's exactly what I, what I find so fascinating about this is that um, you know th- there is uh, so that there's a spectrum of um, players in the space, right? And, and and players who are at different stages of entering the space or of putting together different partnerships, um, and that puts you in this really, really interesting place in terms of what you're actually allowed to say about yourself in different places. Um, so, uh, just I mean, in, in our case we were given very clear guidance on what language to use and what language not to use. And obviously like we are trying to become a bank. And so we are heavily incented to stay on everyone's nice side. Um, but there are other things that the regulators are also very sensitive to. I mean, I think that to this point of the sort of stack, um, especially after Wirecard, 
the regulators, the FCA in particular, became extremely sensitive to uh, electronic money issuers and payments institutions implying that they were banks and using the term bank. And so uh, I, I don't know that there was any publication about this, but the sort of back channel conversations that I've had with different players in the space was that they got like sort of unambiguous messaging that like if they used the word bank anywhere on their website, they were going to need to change that to be like totally clear that they were not a bank and not to suggest it in, in any way. Um, and it's so interesting to think about a company like Lannister, which has like no regulatory permissions at all. It's not actually clear whether they've engaged with the FCA to begin with um, and using this language. I think the thing that's so interesting to me is that if they haven't actually engaged with the FCA yet, which I suspect they have not, <laughs> um, the fact that the FCA has put out this warning suggests to me that the FCA probably had pretty robust evidence from someone that there was a service being provided. Maybe it was a beta service. Maybe it was being run out of someone's, like literally out of someone's like personal bank account, but like wrapped in the sort of, uh, you know, um, the, the veneer, the user interface of like an actual app. It may not have had a card issued on top of it. Like the FCA generally doesn't rush into things like this. So I'm suspecting that it was not just in this marketing state in order to get the FCA to say something like this. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, the FCA doesn't tend to um, tend to act without uh, due cause, does it? Um, Ginger, would you like to give us um, uh, uh, your your final, well, the final word on this? And, and you have a sort of a different perspective, I suspect, because you're not you're not based here in Europe. I'm not, but given that I'm based in the US, where social media has played a incredibly strong role in our recent election. I don't think it's political, but but seeing uh, a company out there that is using the influencers that's talking about being the best and the most and the tremendous and the bigliest um, gives me a little bit of PTSD. So um, I just, I think more my comment is around the leveraging social media to create spin, to create this idea that people, that, that anyone can comment on the value of a product or a you know, candidate or whatever, whatever your, your avenue is. I think it's a big challenge that we're all facing that, that we're moving away from, from actual experts in a particular area to influencers having uh, the biggest say on the marketing or the promotion of, of something. I think that's a challenge that we all have to face and whether it's the regulators that come into that, um, whether it is kind of other standard setting bodies or whether it's just us as individuals that start to pull back on, on believing what everything we hear. I think that's a big challenge we all have to face. I was just going to say, I wonder if it's a generational thing because I don't trust a single thing I see on Instagram. But then I haven't, I mean, I'm not sure I know what TikTok is. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm a very, very cynical person. Also, I'm British. We tend to be cynical by nature. Um, Kate, sorry, final word to you. I, I think you're right, um, Ginger, in terms of like, the role of, of social media. But I suppose I reflect on, you know, I my main bank is still the same bank that my parents set up for me when I was a kid. Like, I just took, you know, I have others as well. I'm not like, you okay. know in a you know monogamous relationship with my bank but you know I still have that as my my main bank so I suppose that's kind of I don't see the the role of social media necessarily as being I mean it is different to that obviously but it's still customers looking to an audience or community that they take meaning from or they have a connection to and saying well what are these people using if they're using it maybe I should look at it too so I think it's scary and it's different so I think it definitely needs to be looked at and monitored and regulated but I do think it's not that just, you know, I don't think in the past we've all been looking at the banks that we've used in a super discerning and super uh, um, you know, differentiating way. Like we've often been just taking a bank that's put in front of us. So this is just a different way of doing that. Um, but, all right. Yeah. That's, that's a fair point. 
Um, all right, we're gonna we're gonna leave it there, and and we're gonna move on, and we're gonna come back and talk about the fact that you have still with the bank your parents set up for you when you were sixteen um, offline. Um, okay, so now we're moving on uh, to the stories we didn't have time to cover. So these are some of the other stories from the week um, that we thought deserved a shout out. So Kate, do you want to start? Sure. See if I can redeem myself now. So um, MasterCard has got a US Department of Justice green light for the Finicity deal. So MasterCard said on Monday that the US Department of Justice has allowed it to move forward with its $825 million deal to buy fintech firm Finicity. This is in stark contrast with Visa's acquisition of Plaid. This was first announced in June and MasterCard said the deal was expected to close by the end of the year. Finicity is expected to help MasterCard strengthen its open banking services. Finicity has partnered with major financial institutions in the past, including Wells Fargo, Fidelity Investments, Capital One Financial Corp, and JP Morgan Chase. So my take on this, this isn't new news in itself, given obviously, as we've mentioned, that the deal was announced at the start of the summer. But I think the real interest here lies in the timing of this and kind of what it might mean for other fintech M&As. So around Two weeks ago now, I think it was, uh, the Department of Justice filed an antitrust lawsuit challenging Visa's deal with Plaid. Um, and I think they're also still looking at Intuit's deal with Credit Karma from February, sort of the start of this year. So off the back of that, you know, I get the sense that there's been some concern that these kinds of M&As in the US weren't going to be possible for, for late stage fintechs. So the Finicity deal isn't quite on the same scale money wise. So we'll have to wait and see what happens with, with Plaid and Credit Karma before getting too excited. But it does sound like that M&A option might be back on the table. So uh, worth watching this space. Cool. Well, the next story is that Doe with two U's goes live in the US. So the Australian neobank and smart money management app Doe is moving out of beta and officially launching in the wider US market. Uh, this comes one month after it began trading on the Australian stock exchange. Um, Doe offers a subscription-based financial wellness platform, which helps customers with money management, paying off debt, saving more each month and building up their wealth by using a smart bank account and a MasterCard debit card. Uh, the US launch also marks the introduction of Doe's Bills Jar feature with a linked virtual card, which allows users to track and cover their fixed and recurring outgoing expenses. Um, so I think there's a couple of interesting things here. Uh, one interesting and one perhaps not so. Um, the fact that the Australian bank decided to launch its product in the US, but chose its home market as a place to list on the stock exchange is really a fascinating insight, I think, into the Australian market. Um, it's very easy to list on the Australian stock exchange as a much smaller company. It has a history of really encouraging uh, smaller, more innovative companies to list, as opposed to somewhere like the US, where you you know you have somebody like uh, you know Stripe who hasn't even or firms only listed this week. You know the size of a firm compared to Doe, um, but obviously the US market is much much bigger in terms of potential customers for Doe. So so that makes sense. Australia's got really quite a small population. Um, that said, it's taken Doe quite a while to get to market and its list of features and functionality when I read it out there doesn't sound like it stands out a great deal um, in comparison to what's already on the US market. So it'd be really interesting to see how it does in terms of customer acquisition. Cool. Uh, and finally here, Nutmeg partners with JP Morgan for exclusive fund range. Nutmeg has partnered with JP Morgan to launch a range of exchange traded funds exclusively for the robo-advisors customers. The launch is of a bespoke new investment offering named Smart Alpha for Nutmeg customers. The range will include both active and passive ETFs, and each portfolio will hold between 10 to 14 different ETFs. 
This comes off the back of what Nutmeg have called a successful first half of 2020 as it benefited from the accelerated adoption of digital services due to the coronavirus crisis. So I uh, took a look at this on the, the Nutmeg website and I suspect I'm again not the not the target audience for this because I watched the explainer video and did not find it super exciting. But from personal preferences aside, this seems like a smart partnership to open up more options for, for Nutmeg's customers. They'll get access to more actively managed funds backed by the global insights of JP Morgan's not insubstantial team of research analysts with the promise of, sort of better navigating market fluctuations for enhanced returns. So if Nutmeg have had success at getting more people on board during the pandemic, which it sounds like they have, then it feels like a, a natural progression to put something like this in place that will help keep customers engaged as their investment horizons get potentially more ambitious to open up their open up their options. Great. Well, on to today's and finally story, and that is Rooster Money has predicted what all the children want for Christmas. Um, so Rooster Money has forecasted what is going to top kids' Christmas lists this year based on what they have been saving their pocket money towards. Uh, data has been drawn from real wish lists entered into the app by children across the UK. So Lego and phones top the list, followed by, this is going to be hilarious, Fortnite, Roblox, Nintendo Switch, and PlayStation, bicycles came in at number 10. Apparently, Lego starts to wane in popularity after the age of 10 when phones and consoles take over. Um, The Pocket Money Index from Rooster Money also looked at preferences by gender and age. So Lego is high on both agendas, which is actually really great to see. Um, Phones and Nintendo Switches uh, are also popular with, with both genders, but boys lean towards gaming consoles whilst girls preferred tablets. So Anna, I'm going to come to you first because you and I have had many conversations about uh, financial products for children um, over, over the last few weeks. Um, and then I will, I will come around with the rest of the group and get your take. Yeah, Ginger, I, I understand that you have children of your own. So this may be a <laughs> four. Okay. Yeah, we will, <laughs> we will come to you next. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think it's 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 the most interesting thing is that they want a phone. I guess it's not shocking, right? But again, it explains why there are so many fintech products for kids because they're all on their phones. I'm glad to report that my kid has not asked for a phone yet, but she's only one and she's using mine, so it's it's fine. And and she does have a tablet yet because for her last year, I for her name day, which we celebrate being Southern European. Um, I was very proud I got her a doll and then her dad appeared with an iPad. So that put me to shame and now she has an iPad, but I try to seal it. So we'll see what she wants. If she, if she feels more like a Lego or Xbox type girl, but we'll see. I'm, 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 I'm as I said, very pleased that Lego is still there because I, 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 I love Lego even now as an adult and I'm very pleased it's popular among both genders. Um, Ginger, does this sound uh, familiar or, or is this not you know what you see in your household? Oh no, this is this is spot on. Um, my kids, I've my kids are youngest is three, the oldest is twelve, um, and the Lego magazine came in the mail yesterday. And both of the older kids have gone through it and circled everything they want and what they think their little sisters might like and what they want to give to each other and what we should buy for them. Um, and that is after my ten year old wants the wants Robux, which is what you get in Roblox, which is how you say it, Sarah. Now you know. What is that? Um, is that a Lego Roblox, thing? Roblox, it's it's a it's a it's a multiplayer game they can do. They play with their friends, right? We're all in quarantine, so that's how they play with their friends is on Roblox all the time. Um, the two older kids, the two younger ones, very, very little of that because I, they would go crazy otherwise. Um, my kids all have bikes, but I'm, I was sad to, to your point to see that bikes were so low on the list. Um, but I think that's also a factor of how much our kids are sitting in front of screens these days, as opposed to getting outside, which is, which is 
another sad impact of, of where we all are. Um, but I actually liked the forecast. I, it lines right up with what I'm seeing in my house. But I, 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 you know, as we're coming into Christmas, I'm trying to figure one to buy for my kids that doesn't involve video games. I'm looking for lists like this to help me find things that are non-screen related to give them to hopefully get them doing other things. I'm interested. I mean, I don't, I don't have kids for disclaimer, but I'm interested to think about whether the things that kids try and save up for are the same as the things that they ask for for Christmas, certainly from like harking back many years to when I was writing my Christmas lists. Um, I think the stuff I put in my Christmas list was always like the super aspirational stuff that I definitely could not have saved up for. Like I was, I was pushing it for sure. So I don't know. I'd be interested to see if, if the two match up, like, um, and obviously, you know, I think we had in the, had the notes, you know, thinking about whether this would translate into the adult market as well. Like, could we look at adult savings goals and, and apply the same logic? I don't know if it would it would quite apply. But um, yeah, I think it's definitely interesting. Yeah, I will tell you, my 12-year-old has been sharing with me his Google Docs wish list for months. Um, <laughs> it's just been cracking me up every time he updates it, he lets me know. Um, but, but it is interesting because on that wish list are mostly things he cannot afford with his pocket money. Um, but there are a few things that he's actually saved up and, and spent on. So I, it, it's, there's a little bit of overlap, but you're right. It's aspirational as opposed to things that he could actually afford. Um, and he tends to spend his money pretty much as soon as he gets it. So It's interesting because um, I, I think with Rooster Money, it's one of the ones where parents can put money in to reward children. So if like a phone is on there, then it, then it might be kind of more um, sitting in the middle of that kind of aspirational, you know, what they can't afford and what they can afford. Because if they know they can put this much in, but they do their chores and mum will put that much in, then it, then it becomes more affordable in that sense. And actually the parents are contributing um, to it more. Just a quick question. How much is a, how much are Roblox and Fortnite? Like, what are we talking here compared to like an iPhone? They don't, they don't cost anything. They're just, they're just video games. They're, they have, they have in-app purchases, which is what my daughter's asking for money for is to, to buy things in-app. You can buy, I don't, I don't even know, to be honest, you could buy. Yeah. The, the, the danger is you can spend infinite amounts of money <laughs> on this. So they're asking for credit, essentially. This is why all the kids have in-app purchases blocked on every device they ever use, because otherwise, to David's point, we would go bankrupt paying for all that stuff. <laughs> David, did you did you have anything you wanted to add? I don't know if you have kids or, or if you have nieces and nephews or something. Perhaps it lines up with what they're expecting. No, 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 no. I, I do not have kids, but I am a huge nerd, which means I do pay attention to, you know, what's happening with, with video games. Um, I am fixated uh, on definitely the idea of there being a market for a grown-up version of this. Like, every Christmas, my, you know, my family are like, what do you want for Christmas? I'm like, it's just like you know, like deer in headlights. Like I, I have no idea what are what are other like people in their mid thirties getting. Like that would be awesome. <laughs> so I was going to ask Kate, how old's your husband? Who's just bought the PlayStation? Thirty three. <laughs> so <laughs> it sounds like the list might be quite similar. Is all I was going to say. Yeah, there's alarming overlap between. Yeah, but I um I don't know if any of you guys have the same issue. I get as a as an adult, I get to sort of a cutoff point maybe in early November, mid November, when I want to buy something for myself. And I just have to stop and say, no, I cannot have this book until Christmas because I need like something to, I mean, it's obviously a, a privileged position to be in, but um, yeah, I do find that you have to kind of store up things as an adult for Christmas. So yeah, if there was something like this, it could apply to adults and find things that I didn't realize I wanted, that'd be wonderful. Well, what I can advise you all to do is to buy a house that is far bigger than the house you currently own that has no appliances in and then have to spend Christmas going, I would like a washing machine. I would like a new bathroom door. Um, it would be really great if we could have a microwave. Um, and then that keeps you going for like birthdays, anniversaries, Christmas. Um, so that's the position I'm currently in. I think I'll be getting a new washing machine for Christmas. So very exciting. Um Okay, I'm going to wrap us up there. Thank you so much to all our guests. Where can people find out more about you and the companies you work for? David, let's start with you. 
easiest to find us on our website, which is griffin.sh. Perfect. Ginger, how about you? Uh, you can find information about me on ihgroup.com and, of course, on LinkedIn. Brilliant. Anna? You can find my stories on Reuters.com or follow me on Twitter at Anna Herrera. And Kate, other than starring in 11FS documentaries, where can people find you? <laughs> well, the documentary, I think you can find that on, on Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, all of the, all the standard kind of places. But um, probably best place to find me is either on LinkedIn, Kate Moody, or on Twitter at K8Moody. Perfect. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Um, Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, do subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and it helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11 colon FS or FinTech Insider or email podcast 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.